Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Hello and welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Arts Commission, and this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week, we come to you with a different in-depth discussion uh, with a different creative Mississippian. That could be an artist, a musician, or someone helps promote the arts in their community. And I, I think today we're, we're, we're talking about the latter, and uh, we're talking with Jim O'Neill, who was a longtime Mississippi resident. He lives out of state now, but he continues to work helping to research and promote the blues and uh, African-American music history of Mississippi. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Larry. Well, Jim, your uh, your CV is so long and illustrious. We, we, we probably spend the whole first segment just kind of going through all of your accomplishments. But for those who don't know your name, maybe you could just kind of hit few, a few of the high points about some of the work you've done over the years. I guess my first uh, real musical contribution was... Uh, when I was a college student at Northwestern, and uh, some friends and I formed or founded Living Blues Magazine, which was America's first blues magazine. So uh, my wife and I published the magazine and from 1970 until 1983 when uh, we turned it over to the University of Mississippi. And uh, so it's still being published there now. It's And it's, what, 48th, 49th year or so. And I still contribute to it. You know, I was the editor for a while, but uh, I'm still a contributing editor and founding editor. And then I also uh, have had a couple of record labels. Uh, one started in Chicago, and then another one started in Kansas City, where I moved uh, later, uh, Rooster Blues Records and Stackhouse Recording Company. And I uh, lived in Clarksdale for a while, uh, helped to work with the Sunflower River Blues Festival, and I had a record store called the Stackhouse, and uh, we had a little studio in the back where we recorded a lot of the local blues artists, and like uh, Super Chicken and Big Jack Johnson and a lot of others. And uh, for the last uh, 12 years, I've been working with the Mississippi Blues Trail, and that's been uh, really interesting for me because uh, Scott Beretta, who's... He has the Highway 61 Blues Show and was the editor of Living Blues after I was. We worked together on that, and we were called in because, you know, we were, supposedly we could, with the knowledge that we'd accumulated over the years, we could just identify all the places that needed blues markers. And the, what's been so interesting, it's been a real learning experience for us. We found out how much we didn't know and how much blues came from all these smaller towns in Mississippi. You always hear about maybe what comes out of Clarksdale or Jackson, but, you know, there was blues in Hattiesburg and Macomb and New Albany, you know, it's all over the state. So it's that's been really interesting. Yeah. So what's kind of your origin story in terms of the blues? When did you fe- first hear it and what? How, how did you get interested in it? Uh, I, I grew up uh, mostly in Mobile and uh, my parents are from Mississippi and we lived in Memphis for a while. My mother actually taught at the high school where Elvis went, but she was there the year afterwards. Humes High? Is Humes that High School, yeah. Um, but I didn't really learn about blues. I realized I had heard it from time to time, but I didn't really get into it until I was in college and realized that that's where the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds and all those groups were getting their music from, and I was a real fanatic about that, their music. Uh, 
but Chicago was the best place in the world I could have been to learn about it at the time because Buddy Waters and Helen Wolf, uh, Magic Sam, Otis Rush, all those people were still in Chicago. And uh, so I just really got immersed in it. Uh, I was a college student at Northwestern, and some friends and I would drive down to the south side or the west side to the African-American neighborhoods and uh, hear those people playing in the clubs and realize that there wasn't much being written about them. And people, the people like the Rolling Stones who recorded Helen Wolf's music were you know, playing these big arenas, making thousands of dollars, and Wolf was making maybe $200 a night playing on the west side at some little club. And, we thought they deserved some more recognition than that. And uh, I, at the same time, I got into journalism, uh, journalism school at Northwestern. So I kind of combined those two interests and became one of the editors of the magazine. And was it like a, it was kind of a self-funded, self-produced type of thing coming out, out of the gate initially? or? Oh, yeah. I guess the we, we got our first money from Bob Kester, who was the owner of Delmark Records and the Jazz Record Mart. Who he, he had recorded Junior Wells and Magic Sam and Big Joe Williams and a lot of blues artists and he was kind of our mentor and he helped helped us get started and we kind of just depended on getting enough money from advertising and subscriptions from one issue to pay for the next issue and we usually got behind but uh, we kept it going. Well, you, you got to see all the kind of classic performers of that era, um, but I'm wondering if there's maybe not one of the the big leading lights, but somebody that you would tell people to check out that maybe is a little forgotten or not as uh not as up there in the in the in the top of the marquee from that period. Well I think Otis Rush gets overlooked. I mean he's he's pretty well recognized, but you know, he never really crossed over the way say Buddy Guy did or BB King did, you know. And uh I think seeing him at Pepper's Lounge in Chicago really changed my life, you know. That's when I really realized the power and the emotion that was behind the blues. I'd heard the records, but it was nothing like hearing him in person and then hearing Helen Wolf and Hound Dog Taylor and all those people like that. So, you know, Otis is one of my favorites, and uh, Charlie Patton is, he's recognized, well recognized, but I don't think a lot of people really listen to him. He's kind of hard to listen to. <laughs> Yeah, his his music is kind of hard for our ears, our modern ears now, isn't it? It's yeah, a, a totally I mean, the different first thing. time I heard it, some a clerk at the Jazz Record Mart played it, an album for me, and I said, oh, I think I'll wait on that. <laughs> <laughs> Work your way up to it. Huh? Right. <laughs> That's like graduate school yeah, or something, Yeah, well, right? I finally yeah. did, you yeah. know. So I have a chapter in this new University of Mississippi book on Charlie Patton. <laughs> For those of you just tuning in, this is the Mississippi Arts Hour, and I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Jim O'Neill. He's the founder of Living Blues Magazine and one of the primary researchers and writers for the Mississippi Blues Trail. So you're in state right now uh, to uh, speak at the Mississippi Book Festival. It's happening in Jackson, and you've got a piece in a brand new collection uh, that's come out on University Press about Charlie Patton. Talk a little bit about that book and and your, your essay. Yeah, well, this book came about from a, a conference on Charlie Patton that uh, a blues scholar in Belgium put together. So this was in, when I was in Chicago, and they invited me to come to the conference and talk about the influence of Charlie Patton and the Delta Blues on Chicago Blues, which wound up being a fairly short talk and a short chapter in, 
in the original version of this book, which came out in Belgium, uh, uh, edited by Robert Sacre. That was his name. And the, the main contributor to the book, actually, is David Evans from his uh, extensive research with Charlie Patton, uh, his fam- well, the Patton family in particular. But after I moved to Mississippi, you know, I knew about Charlie Patton in Chicago, and I always appreciated his, you know, his greatness and everything. But after I moved to Mississippi, I had the chance to write a chapter for a book called Bluesland about Charlie Patton. The chapter that I wrote ended up being too long, they never, so it didn't get published, and I still had all this research. Because at the time, there were still people around in the Delta who remembered Charlie Patton. I wrote this in like in 1990-91. So I was able to use that as an addition to the, to the original uh, book. So that's appearing it, uh, for the first time in Living Blues magazine and in the, the Charlie Patton book from the University Press. And so is your, the, the title is uh, Modern Chicago Blues Delta Retention. So it's talking about, your essay is talking specifically about the elements that Patton kind of influenced in the, in the modern Yeah, I, I, I use some examples of Charlie Patton's music that, was, that turned up in uh, later recordings by Chicago artists like Johnny Littlejohn and uh, Valerie Wellington. And like I said, that was a fairly short chapter, and it was also about just the, the Delta retentions, you know, the way that the Delta music and the lifestyle was perpetuated in Chicago. You know, Chicago kind of became the place for for people from Mississippi to go, you know, especially African Americans. And But then when the, when the chance to do this revised book came around, you know, I told them that I had this other material. I, I, I wrote a little addition to it about the, the Blues Trail and uh, Charlie Patton. You know, there's a Charlie Patton marker. There's several markers devoted to Charlie Patton on the Blues Trail. And if you drive through South Haven on I-55 at the uh, one of the outlet malls, there's a big lighted display sign that advertises different things in Mississippi. And, occasion- and one of the things that flashes on there is one of the Charlie Patton markers. So I thought that was interesting that after all these years, Charlie Patton's name is up in lights in Mississippi. At the mall. <laughs> At the mall, right. <laughs> so I added that part to it, and then also uh, some of the, the research that I'd gotten about one of the records he did called Tom Russian Blues, which is about a friend of his who got put in jail for bootlegging music back in during the Depression. And so you moved to Mississippi in the 1980s, is that right? Well, I, I was living in Chicago from the time I went to college until 86, and then Living Blues by that time was being published at, uh, at Ole Miss after we'd made some agreements with Bill Ferris, who was the director for the Center of Southern Culture there. He was the one who really orchestrated that move, which included a donation of a lot of our collection to, the, to help form the Blues Archive there, which is still going also. So I moved to Oxford in 86 to, to work closer with the magazine because we were still trying to edit it from Chicago and that wasn't working out too well. You can do it easily now with the internet and everything, but back then, you know, not being hands-on with it was a little difficult. So I moved to uh, Oxford and then uh, once I was in Oxford, I just had this constant attraction to go over to Clarksdale or Indianola or Greenwood or Greenville because that's where the juke joints were, and that's where the the music really was. So I, after about a year, I did move to the Delta, first to Marigold and uh, then to Clarksdale, and started a record store there. But uh, 
But my family's from Mississippi, and I lived in Mississippi before. I grew up in uh, Biloxi and a little bit in Oxford before we moved, and then Memphis and Mobile. My uh, mother's from McGee, and my father's from Socher, and the family goes back several generations in Mississippi, so it felt like coming home. That's great. And you mentioned that you, uh, so we're going to take a a quick music break here, but you mentioned you recorded some folks in the back of your store in Clarksdale. So we're going to listen to one of the, uh, one of those artists and maybe you just tell, talk a little bit about uh, Super Chicken, James Super Chicken Johnson from Clarksdale. I had seen uh, James Johnson. They called him James Coleman Johnson when I first knew him. And he was playing bass with his uncle, Big Jack Johnson sometimes and with other groups around Clarksdale. That was back in the 70s, but <clears throat> when I moved to went to Clarksdale, which was in 88, he started coming around, or uh, one of the other local artists, uh, Ernest Guitar Roy, had, uh, was trying to pers- tell me I should record him. and So I got to talking to Super Chicken, and he was driving a truck at the time, and while he was you know, driving his truck, he would be thinking of songs, writing songs, and he, he had made a lot of little cassette tapes of his own music, you know, overdubbing different instruments on it. And uh, they were really interesting, I thought. And uh, he had a, a really, uh, he and he and his uncle, Big Jack Johnson, I think, were the uh, most original blues artists to come out of the Delta in several generations. You know, they, they were doing something different, you know. And he had, like, comical songs and songs that were kind of social commentary, too. And, and they were different kinds of arrangements. They weren't the standard blues. So he asked me, and I thought, so I told him, and he, he thought he was just going to write songs for other people to record, but I said, no, you should record these songs. And I remember one of the things he said, well, if, you know, if I start having to go out and play, am I going to have to leave my truck driving job? <laughs> <laughs> he was afraid of that, but now now he's out there. He goes all over the world playing, you know, and he doesn't have his truck driving job. <laughs> no. Well, let's listen to this. This is from his um, album, Shoot That Thing, that came out on uh, Rooster Blues Records. This is James Super Chicken Johnson on the Arts Hour. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Jim O'Neill. He is the founder of Living Blues Magazine and one of the primary researchers and writers for the Mississippi Blues Trail. We kind of left you in Clarksdale, and I was hoping you maybe just talk a little bit about that time. Of course, now every Clarksdale's become this blues tourism destination, but I'm curious to just hear kind of your thoughts about what was Clarksdale like when you first got there in the in the late 1980s in terms of the music scene and that. Clarksdale was was always one of the best places in the Delta. I, I really didn't think it was the best. I thought Greenville, Greenville at the time had a better music scene. It was a little larger, and there was more juke joints around Greenville. But And uh, we almost moved to Greenville at, at that time, uh, my partner was Patty Johnson, who's uh, still a chiropractor there in Clarksdale. But we started the uh, Stackhouse Records store there to, in Clarksdale, and I moved. I'd already had Rooster Blues Records in Chicago, and I just brought that with me and switched, kind of switched the focus from recording Chicago blues, which was mostly transplanted Mississippi blues anyway, <laughs> to recording artists who were in the Delta and recorded Booba Barnes and... Uh, Willie Foster, T-Model Ford. Some of that stuff didn't come out. I still have some of it I need to put out. There was a string band with Big Jack Johnson and Eugene Powell and fiddle player from New Orleans. And it's a lot of interesting stuff came out, and Super Chicken. And 
but Clarksdale was, uh, you know, the the town wasn't attuned to the blues so much, but there were a few people. The mayor at the time was John Mayo, and the mayor who succeeded him, Henry Espy, was always supportive of the blues. And Panny Mayfield at the Clark, Clarksdale Press Register newspaper, and Sid Graves, who was uh, had founded the Delta Blues Museum there. They were kind of encouraging us to come to Clarksdale and instead of Greenville or somewhere else. And so we did. We uh, bought a building there in Clarksdale that had been an old ice cream store. It was called the Cream Boat, and we changed it to the Stack House. And it looked like a steamboat. Like the top of the steamboat, right? right. Yeah, it was a really cool building. Smokestacks on top. And named it that because of the smokestacks and also because Houston Stack House was a blues artist that I was real fond of. So we thought that would be a a good bluesy name for it. The uh, first Sunflower River Blues Festival came after a few months after we opened the store and we helped book the acts for that and I got Otis Rush to come down and Son Thomas played on it, Jesse May Hemphill and a lot of the local bands too. And at the time, you know, it was one of the things that we tried to point out to, to the uh, local business community was that People would come to Clarksdale to hear the music, you know, that that the blues could be a tourist attraction. And that was kind of a hard point to sell. One of the famous quotes that still circulates around Clarksdale is some of the people would say, nobody's going to come all that way to hear a black man play a guitar. (laughs) (laughs) But they did. (laughs) You know, there were a few few tourists at the first festival and it grew and grew and they just had the... The 31st festival last week in Clarksdale, and there were people from several different countries around the world there, and so it, and a little tourist, a small tourist industry has grown up there. You know, there's a few businesses like Cathead and Ground Zero Club that uh, cater to the the blues tourists and the local blues crowd. So, uh, you know, it, it's not a booming business, I wouldn't say, but it it it's certainly uh, the place to go. You know, if you want to make sure you can hear some blues, I think Clarksdale and Jackson are probably the the two best places. And I think the thing that was maybe a little unique to the Sunflower Festival was that there was a very strong focus on both the local performer or performers who had roots in the Delta or Clarksdale. It wasn't just like, let's get the biggest blues performer we can. It was, let's create kind of this, kind of like tell the story of the thing through the bookings. Right. Part of the point was that, you know, that tourists were coming through Mississippi like one at a time or a group at a time, and they would be stopping, taking pictures of Highway 49 and 61 signs. And because those are places they heard about in the songs and in the stories from the blues artists. And uh, it seemed to me like uh, people would come to hear the local music. And um, that was a policy of the festival when it started that all the performers had to be from Mississippi. It, you know, they didn't have to still live in Mississippi, but everyone, every artist who was on those early festivals was from Mississippi. And, uh, you know, a couple from Helena or Memphis, you know, they, they count too, I guess. <laughs> you know? And it, that's still the focus of it. I think uh, the headliners on the, the last festival were O.B. Buchanan, who's on the you know, the soul blues circuit. He's become a, a leading figure on, on that circuit. He's originally from Clarksdale. He lives in South Haven now. And uh, Christone Kingfish, who's Ingram, who's the, the new up-and-coming phenomenon, and Super Chicken. Uh, 
And I think every artist on the festival this year was from Clarksdale. Yeah, I mean, it really, it, and I think people come because they know that they're going to see something unique and, 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 and specific to that area. It's not just, you know, there's so many festivals that just throw whatever group of performers together. And so you're actually getting this kind of feel for what, a little bit about what the local music scene is like, I guess, somewhat. Right. A lot of festivals they kind of book the same group of touring artists, you know, and they're those are good too. But I think one of the attractions for the Clarksdale Festival and some of the other local festivals in Mississippi is that a lot of these bands aren't out on tour. So if you want to see them, you need to come here to see them. We're talking with Jim O'Neill today on the Arts Hour. He's the uh, founding editor of Living Blues Magazine. He's also one of the primary researchers and writers for the Mississippi Blues Trail. Let, let's jump to the Blues Trail now. It's it's now in its 11th or 12th year. The first markers went up in 2006. First marker was Charlie Patton's birthplace, but there was actually six that went up at the same time, but that's considered marker number one, yeah. And you were brought in, I guess, you, you've been living in Kansas City for, for many years now, but have maintained your connection doing research and, and, and through Living Blues and that. So having been around when the, the Blues Commission was getting formed, there was a, you know, a strong thing that we need to get this right, that, that we can't just rely on the story of the local chamber of commerce to tell the story of the local blues musician. We need these markers to be, you know, have the detail that the, that the blues tourist is going to be looking for. Yeah, we were invited to be researchers and writers on the project, and you know, I really appreciate that opportunity. Uh, I And I think one of the reasons that, that I got in on it was because when I was at Clarksdale, I had started publishing a little thing called the Delta Blues Map Kit, and it was just uh, some, zero, some pages Xerox and stapled together. But so many tourists would come around asking for directions, and I... Instead of trying to tell them every time, I finally figured I should just print it out, you know. And that, uh, so I had some basis in that. Plus, uh, you know, I'd been doing all the interviews with Mississippi blues artists, both in Chicago and in Mississippi, and and doing some uh, working with tourism some. There was a, used to be a, a busload of Japanese tourists who would come over every year. And I would take them to the Blue Front in Bentonia and some other juke joints. And so I, I had a little background in that. And so I was really glad to get the opportunity to, to work on the Blues Trail. One other predecessor I was just thinking about was that the, the map, the birthplace map. Right. That, that you still see. I was in a, I was in a, uh, a restaurant in Springfield, Illinois like two months ago and saw it there so it was just like it just kind of it just kind of went everywhere can you maybe just tell a little i never had asked you about this and just curious about it just a little bit uh a friend of ours named bill balsersack actually had the idea he was at mississippi state at the time and it's a map of mississippi with uh and he wanted to have the birthplaces of the mississippi blues musicians uh identified on the map so Nancy Cosman, who was working with me at the Stack House, and I uh, did a lot of the research to to identify where, at least at the time, where we thought they were from. You know, some of it turned out turns out now not to be correct, <laughs> but uh, so there's over a hundred different musicians identified. And of course, there's a big concentration in the Delta, and there's but there's you know, spread different places, but. 
so Bill printed the uh, initial printing of that map, and uh, it was a constant seller at the Delta Blues Museum and and at our store. And uh, I I had it reprinted later, so I'm still selling them. You know, I st- I've got a, a package of them in my trunk now. I, I bring them with me every time I come to Mississippi. You know. <laughs> Let's take another uh, music break, our second music break, and I've got another uh, CD from uh, the Rooster Blues Connection, or the Rooster Blues, excuse me, the Rooster Blues Records, and and that's kind of on the other side of the state from Clarksdale, Willie King, who was from the the eastern side on kind of on the Alabama border there, and and probably one of my favorite records, that Freedom Creek record of his that was on Rooster Blues. I think that's the record that I'm proudest of having done, Freedom Creek, because I... I first heard Willie King, I was at Ole Miss, and I'd heard about this festival in Utah, Alabama. It's a Black Belt Folk Roots Festival, and I went and I heard, and I didn't know, someone had been there and told me about the festival, but I didn't really know what Willie King was like. So I saw him on stage at that festival, and he was, it was really powerful juke joint type music, but it was, it was political, you know, he was singing about you know, social issues and civil rights. And he had a song about child abuse and stuff that I don't think he ever recorded, but he was always coming up with things like that. And I got to know him and told him I'd like to record him. And uh, that was 1988, but I never did get over to record him while I was living in Mississippi. So that didn't really happen until after I moved to Kansas City and actually sold Rooster Blues to a, to a, a blues fan and businessman in Connecticut who was going to have me continue to produce records for Rooster Blues. And that's one of the first ones I told him I wanted to do. I wanted to go back and see Willie King again and see if I could get him to record. So we went over to, he was living in Aliceville, Alabama, but he was playing at this point in, uh, right across the state line in Prairie Point, Mississippi, which is where he was born. And he had stopped singing those political songs, he said, because... People told him they didn't want to hear that. They just wanted to hear, or, you know, blues. They didn't want to hear, <laughs> be upset or whatever. But I, but I said I think people want to. You know, I like you to do. That's what I, what, what, what was special about what you were doing. And he, he, you know, he hadn't forgotten them. And in fact, he kept coming up with more of them. But he just hadn't put them out in public so much anymore. So that's what the emphasis was on that song. Uh, on that CD, and I uh, got an engineer from uh, from Kansas to come down with me, and we set up in, at Betty's place in Prairie Point, Mississippi, and recorded it uh, live in the club there. And it got a lot of attention, you know, and uh, we did one more album with him uh, in Memphis. And he continued to be, you know, he'd, he'd worked in the, uh, kind of after the Civil Rights era more than during the Civil Rights era, but, you know, he was the one who was kind of carrying on that community work. Yeah, and, he was a community organizer, really, right. at the local level, right? Right, you know, he was trying to get people to register to vote, mm-hmm. you know, and he would go around to people's houses and see if they needed things. I mean, he was just a, a great guy. Willie King and the Liberators, Freedom Creek on Rooster Blues. Let's check out a track right now. We're back on the Arts Hour for our final segment, and today we're talking with Jim O'Neill. He is the founding editor of Living Blues Magazine and one of the primary researchers and writers for the Mississippi Blues Trail, among many other things he's done in his life. Um, So, Jim, there's now 
over there's two, at least there's 200 there's, markers. There's 200 there. markers now and uh, we have another 3 about to be approved, I believe. Yeah. Okay, so we were still rolling on. Yeah, there's uh we thought at the, at the beginning, you know, there were 6 and then they said well maybe we do 10 and then we had a sh- a meeting and came up with a list of 100 and uh thought we would be lucky to get through a few more, but it got such great response, the markers did, that uh, and it kept getting funding through the state and the Department of Transportation and the Mississippi, or the National Endowment for Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts, and local sponsorship. You know, every every marker has to be have some local sponsorship. You know, a local group has to commit some money and and commit some money to maintain maintain it. Um, but yeah, it's just a a great joy that it's kept going so long and so your role along with scott barrettas is they so the community says we want to have a you know we want to have a a marker for otis rush yeah and and there may be you know a two-sentence description that the local people could tell you about otis rush so what happens once they've decided okay now there's going to be in this this marker what what do you and scott get going on um well you know we thought at the beginning that a lot of this history was already documented that we could just use what we had, but we also thought it'd be an opportunity to do uh, additional research. And so, and at the same time, this kind of explosion of information on the internet through genealogy sources has occurred over the last decade or so, and a lot more information. You can look up a lot more things you know, from old newspapers on the internet. Uh, and I do a lot of microfilm research. I go to the Department of Archives and History when I'm in Jackson a lot of times to look through microfilm of newspapers and and marriage certificates, death certificates, birth certificates. So we added that kind of information. So like for in, the, in the case of Otis Rush, I found out that he was from the local courthouse in uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, that he was married in, in 1949 when he was like 15 years old. Or maybe seventeen. You know, we had had. I was still researching his birth date just a couple months ago, <laughs> and it's not what we thought it was. And that happens too a lot. That we, we find out that what we write on the markers, even after we do the research, sometimes nothing, something else comes up. That and I, you know, talking with Otis or in his family and doing the, you know, getting some local, whatever local uh, information we can. You know, we were able to add a lot to the usual biographies because you read Otis Rush's biography and it kind of dismisses his early history in Mississippi, which happens a lot from the guys who went to Chicago. It's like so-and-so was born in Mississippi in 1932. He moved to Chicago in 1948 and then became a famous blues artist, you know. But there's a lot of roots for the blues from what they were doing in Mississippi and there's a lot of family history and stuff that, hasn't been documented so that's that's one of the things that's the same with magic sam from Grenada. you know one of the things i find out about him was that at the time when he was growing up in Grenada, uh string band music was still really strong in the black community so he was listening to fiddlers and you can hear some of that in his music if you listen to some of the boogie and the, the kind of country breakdown stuff that his lead lines or something, maybe? His, his the, lead the rhythm. You okay, know? the rhythm. Yeah. So, you know, that's all been really interesting. And so, and I guess one of the most interesting cases for me was the uh, 
the Prince McCoy marker. Now that's a name that none of us had ever even heard when we had the first meetings, you know, when we came up with the list of markers we should do. And while I was researching the uh, one of the W.C. Handy markers, you know, W.C. Handy is the known as the father of the blues and supposedly discovered a lot, of, you know, the, the blues in Mississippi. So I decided, well, maybe there's more about Handy we can find, too, even though he's very well documented. You know, he was the most famous blues-associated person in America for years, and people still know his name. And There uh, were, like, contemporaneous, lots of newspaper articles and things. I mean, he was he was a celebrity in his in his lifetime. Oh, so, yes, right. yeah, and not, not just in the black community. Right. You know, he was well-recognized, uh, you know, in the general press, and so there's... Uh, ample information on him and I so but I thought maybe there's more we can find out about him that's not on uh, not in the general histories and I found out from a, a handy scholar in New York that there were some manuscripts of his book some unpublished some other versions of the manuscripts he had a book called the father of the blues it was published in 1941 and that's one of the primary sources of, of blues history now, of the early blues history in Mississippi, when he heard the blues in Tutwiler and in Cleveland, Mississippi, where he heard this trio play and that, in, that uh, inspired him because the crowd started throwing money at him when his orchestra, he had a, an orchestra at the time that was playing Broadway hits and marches and different things, and they weren't getting a response from the crowd, but these ragged trio of musicians did, you know. And one of the uh, the manuscripts turned out he actually named who that was. And it's not in the book. The published book doesn't name who that trio was, but one of the manuscripts did, and it was Prince McCoy. So uh, I started uh, on the Prince McCoy trail and found out he lived in Greenville and had a popular orchestra there later after, after this handy experience when he just had supposedly had a ragged trio and then moved to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I tracked him there, found out he'd become a member of a minstrel show, and I managed to talk to the nephew of the man who ran the minstrel show, and we finally decided that uh, we had enough information on him to do the marker, although we hadn't ever come up with a photo. And I think the day that the marker went up in Greenville, reporter I'd been talking to in Winston-Salem found a picture of him. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So we don't, the picture is not on the marker, but uh, there are pictures of him now. He was a very tall man, and he's posed with a fiddle, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and th- this is in Greenville, the, the marker? The marker's in Greenville, yeah. Where, kind of what neighborhood or what? It's near the library there. Okay. On a, at, a, at a place where he... He actually performed when they had outdoor performances there when he was living there. Okay, so kind yeah. of tied to his where a location that ties to him. Yeah. 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 This is the Arts Hour, and we're talking with uh, Jim O'Neill today. He's the founding editor of Living Blues, and also we've been talking about his work on the the Mississippi Blues Trail. I went to a lot of the uh, early uh, marker unveilings, which um, you know, a, a local chamber of commerce kind of event can be kind of dry and you know it's kind of a forced event to try to create news but some of these uh marker unveilings were just really heartwarming events is all i can say to to be part of seeing the community come out and i'm 
was wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit kind of the the community response to some of these markers that you've you've experienced yeah the the marker dedications are are a lot of times very special sometimes it's just the, the mayor and some local officials kind of giving the props to the blues and the local community but sometimes they're more like a church service or a memorial service you know the one I went to the one in Canton the first one in Canton and and it was like that you know and there was a you know there actually were prayer a prayer said and and dedications and things and uh, one of the artists from Canton was uh, William Dubois Diamond and his some of his family were there and one of them was you know in tears just because someone would think enough of him to put his name on a marker, you know. And, and a lot of times at the markers, the people that show up have information that we didn't have when we were researching, and I wish every marker dedication, there should be somebody there doing more research from those people, you know. We went to the one in Columbus, and uh, the first one in Columbus, and we had a picture of a, a man named Tom Turner who had made... A recording for George Mitchell, who did some of, the, who's one of the first people in the '60s to do uh, uh, some of the early recording of R.L. Burnside and people like that. Uh, and some some young kids were looking at the pic, his picture, Tom Turner's picture, and said, "That's Mr. Tom. We used to sing with him, you know." And they were just telling stories about him, which you know nobody knew. You know, we didn't. That's not documented what they were doing with him, you know. So there's always more information out there. And I guess the other area that that's really fascinated me since I got, since we started on the, on the Blues Trail is the Gulf Coast because we hardly had anything when we had these meetings to discuss where the markers should go. We hardly knew anything about what came from down there. You know, we knew Jelly Roll Morton had some connection with Biloxi. You know, he's one of the, he claimed to be the founder of jazz and to have heard the blues and 1903 in New Orleans or or before that you know and but he uh he, he was in Biloxi for a while too and uh so we knew about him and we knew about Ted Hawkins who was a kind of a more of a folky kind of blues guy who who went out to California but we didn't know yeah other than he came from Waveland we didn't know much about him I think that was the only two names we had and then but once I started researching it I realized there was this great vibrant scene down there there was just bands all the time all through past christian and bay st louis and gulfport and pascagoula and biloxi you know and, and there were black clubs and there was clubs on the beach which, which at the time was white but you know they would have black entertainment there and they weren't for the most part they weren't like deep blues bands like from the delta but they were more like r&b from new orleans and maybe uh covering the the blues and R&B hits of the day. But there is a, a really important scene down there, and there's still some really good musicians down there. J-Mo from the Allman Brothers. Right. Um, I talked to him, and uh, again, I've read tons of stuff uh, about him, but he started telling me about playing with Professor Longhair and, and people on the coast, you know, and the blues bands that he played with, and there was a band called the Kings of Soul and another one called the Sounds of Soul. And these these places and the the marching band, the and all the bands and stuff that he played with, and that that stuff's not in his history that you that you read anywhere. You know, and that's amazing. Yeah. Well, what kind of 
projects do you have going now besides the Blues Trail? Do you have any research projects or other things you want to mention or uh, that are of particular interest? Uh, I've been working on a, a supposedly a Delta Blues book for years, <laughs> a post-war Delta Blues book, and I still hope to finish that. Mike Ledbetter, who was a founder, one of the founders of Blues Unlimited magazine in England, had started it, and he died in 1974, and I, I'd been working on it with him, and I had what he had done in the manuscript and uh, gathered more pieces of it over the years. And I kept thinking, well, I have enough now to, to do the book, but I never had time to finish it. And by the, also it seems like I kept getting more and more information and more and more information, sources of information kept turning up. So there's, it all needs to be revised anyway now. So hopefully that'll get done one day. And hope Scott Scott Beretta and I uh, want to make a book out of all the stuff we've done for the Mississippi Blues Trail, or maybe two books. Well, if people want to learn more about your work, and uh, you're also very active in the the resale market of records and doing research in that, where where can you let's direct them online to your your online home? Okay. Uh, well, my website is called. Uh, bluesoterica.com that's b-l-u-e-s-o-t-e-r-i-c-a dot com because I, I that's the name of a column that I started in, in Living Blues it was esoteric information about the blues you know different little bits of trivia that people may not know that uh, that I that I was doing research on uh, but I named the website that and I you can so there's pages on that website about Charlie Patton, about Otis Rush, about Memphis Minnie, who's also one of my favorites, and a lot of mail order information. And I also have a, an eBay store if you buy records online. And my eBay ID is Stackhouse232. All right, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And we really appreciate all the work that you've done over the years helping kind of tell the story of Mississippi's music. Well, you know, I appreciate, I appreciate, uh, I came to appreciate Mississippi, I think, uh, after I went, after I was in Chicago (laughs) and uh, found out that so much of the music I loved came from Mississippi. Well, um, for those of you who've tuned in late and you'd like to listen back or share the show with a friend, you can go to MPB's website, mpbonline.org. They post all the Arts Hour shows as streaming files. They also have a podcast feed, so you can load it up on your phone or your iPod, whatever you listen to podcasts on, and, and share it that way. Until next time, we'll be seeing you around.